Bibles, if they're not still open, to 1 Thessalonians. That'd be chapter 4, and as Matt read, 13 through 18 tonight, and we're looking at sanctified grief, a hope that transforms. So for the last several weeks, we've been working through this letter of 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a church in Thessalonica, which is located in northern Greece. And throughout this, this letter, we have seen quite a bit, so I encourage you to go back and listen to the messages. On, they're all on the internet. But through chapter one, we, we saw that Paul had, was um, talking about the vital signs of faith. Then he moved on to talk about the vital signs of true gospel ministry. And Paul had gone to the city in Thessalonica, and he'd only been with him about a month. And he saw people come to Christ during his time there. But usually he would go and want to spend longer teaching them. But some of the Jews that were there, some of the other people in the city weren't happy with this Christianity showing up in their city. So there was, there was an uproar, a mob arose. And so the new believers sent Paul and Silas away for their own safety. So now we have Paul with a long-distance relationship with these new believers, this new church that he just established in this city in northern Greece. And he was wondering, how, how were they faring amongst the persecution, amongst the mob of people who weren't happy? How are they faring? How are they doing? And he had tried over and over to come and see them, but he was hindered, as we saw in chapter 3, but he longed to see them as a parent, longed to see their child. And he sent Timothy on a reconnaissance mission. He said, Timothy, go find out how this church is doing. So Timothy goes and he, he spends some time with him and he brings back a, great, a good report that as Paul had longed to see this church and he desired to come to them, it was mutual. They longed to see him as well. He was their spiritual father, you could say. They hadn't thrown it all to the wind amidst persecution or the trouble. So Paul loved them. And so Timothy brought back this report, but also this report wasn't fully good. It was, it was great in that they, they were doing well, and, um, but there was things that they still needed instruction on. Paul was only with him a short time. Normally he would go spend months, not years, with new churches, instructing them, teaching them, discipling them. But here he's only with them three to four weeks. So as we come to chapter four in this letter, we see that there are some issues that were arising within this church. And Paul is seeking to supply what was lacking in their faith. So he takes up the quill in chapter four to supply what was lacking. So if he starts out chapter four, encouraging them in writing that you should live a life, believers, that is pleasing to God, and to do this more and more. He's urging them to live a life pleasing to God. And then he, he, he raises the issue, sexual purity. Live a life of sexual purity. The, that ancient world, or uh, in Thessalonica, um, 
as it was Adam that was preaching on it, adultery, these sexual sins were prevalent at that time. So he's telling them, keep yourselves from that. And then he moves on to loving the brothers, and he's, he's urging them to love the brothers more and more. And as Liam, our associate pastor, spoke several weeks ago, he said, do this in a thousand little ways. But here we reach the end of chapter four. And the Thessalonians, we see, were grieving loss. They'd obviously suffered some sort of death, whether it be family, or if you're the body of Christ, we are family. So they were potentially on the verge of despairing as those who have no hope. So Paul's writing to not just instruct them on the Lord's return, because this is something big, a theme that's all the way through 1 Thessalonians is Christ is coming back. But Paul here isn't just writing them a systematic theology on Christ's second coming. Why this is here, in this part of the letter, for this people, is to encourage them. It's to encourage this downtrodden, grief-stricken church in the face of conflict. He's seeking to comfort them amidst their reflection, remind them of their hope, and to fill in some gaps of their understanding. So Paul reminds and instructs the Thessalonians of their Christian hope. And I was thinking about this week, um, I was thinking about loss, and loss is something everyone will experience. Nobody can get away from it. And some people here have experienced little, a little bit of grief, a little bit of loss. And some people here on the other side of the spectrum have experienced so much loss and grief, it's almost, maybe it has led you to despair. It's almost crushed you amidst it. Or as in our own body, George, as we heard this week. And it's actually, I was talking to Liam about this sermon when the call came in. That George had passed away. He's our family. And that, this message hits dear to our hearts today. C.S. Lewis, in speaking of suffering in Christianity, said, We were promised sufferings. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for, he said. Of course, it is different when the thing happens to oneself, not to others. And when these things happen in reality, not imagination. This is when theology meets real life, when emotions and faith meet. And most people don't plan when they're gonna go or suffer loss and grief, it's usually something that comes suddenly. We hear about it, we read about it. Here, you look in the Bible that persecution is gonna come. We know that the ultimate statistic, 10 out of 10 people die. It's coming for each one of us. And it often catches us off guard, whether it be a loved one or a friend. And one clear example was uh, just over a week and a half ago, or two weeks ago, a man walked into a church in Texas and shot 26 people. These believers gathered together to worship God as they normally do on a Sunday, and this man walked in and opened fire. And I li recently listened to or watched a video, and it was the pastor and his wife. 
and what, the words he said. And later on he said, keep your eyes up, keep your head up, and focus on Christ this week. But what could possibly give this man such hope in such great pain? Most of the world wouldn't understand. They'd think it would be foolishness. But we're looking at our Christian hope tonight. Christian hope that transforms grief in the midst of sorrow, transforms belief in the midst of uncertainty, and transforms relief in the midst of the church. And these were issues that, were, that the, this first century church was facing, and these are issues that are pertinent to us today. So firstly, if you look to the text, first Verse 13 is Christian hope transforms grief in the midst of sorrow. I hope if I was there. So verse 13 says these words. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So from this passage, we see a contrast coming. Did you catch it? There are those who hope like the world, the rest of the world, Paul says, who have no hope. And then implied is there's another group of people who hope not like the rest of the world or grieve not like the rest of the world, but who do have hope. I read recently that hope or, or that grieving is not a linear journey. You don't just move further and further away from it and forget. It's like a spiral. You come around and around and around. And I have a friend who lost his wife last year at 41, and to see this man ripped in two, he's a Christian, he's a born-again believer, to see this man struggling, but he still has this hope that he's told me. But what is this hope? C.S. Lewis said again that, that grieving, grieving a loved one is like getting an amputation, ripped off a limb, we see grieving isn't, isn't something foreign in the Bible. Jesus was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. The story of Lazarus, he was so grieved he wept. But Paul's desiring that they do not despair as those who have no grief. And this group of people who have no grief, it's quite a spectrum because you have your militant atheists who fall in that category. If you look up quotes, of, uh, quotes by um, just Atheist quotes on purpose and meaning or grief. Dawkins has some, some stotars. Life is meaningless, purposeless. There's nothing, nothing beyond the grave. You make, you create your own meaning in life. And then you have like the religious people like the Pharisees who, who did everything on the outside, but probably when the rubber met the roads, they weren't clean on the inside. So Paul is saying there are only two camps. There are those who, who have hope and can grieve like hope, grieve as they, like they do have hope, and there are those who, who grieve like the rest of the world. And he's not saying grief is wrong or bad by any means. But this grief, the, the grief is transforming hope. The grief transforming hope here is exclusive to Christianity. That's what Paul is trying to drive them, is I don't want you to grieve like this. Don't grieve like them. Grieve like this. You have hope. And why, why should they not grieve like the rest of the world? Because Christianity is the only true belief that doesn't just promise, make empty promises, doesn't just promise 
salvation and transformation. It actually does it. I've met countless people who've been utterly transformed by Christ, by this hope. And it equips believers with an assurance and hope that is much greater than just wishful thinking. And as I said, grief isn't, grief isn't wrong. It's a natural process we will all go through. But we can gain hope from here that we don't have to despair like the rest of the world. Not at all, he says. That is why we must keep our eyes fixed on Christ daily. As we heard in our, our Sunday sermons through Hebrews, fix your eyes on Christ. Fix your mind on Christ. So yes, Christians can despair. Paul's fear is that they are despairing. But Paul acknowledged that these are Christians in Thessalonica. He, he said, I don't want you to despair and grieve like them. But Paul is writing to inform and encourage them so, not like, so they will not act like the rest of the world, but they would act like Christians with hope. Now hope is one of these words that gets thrown around. Um, and if I asked a handful of you, you'd probably give me a handful of answers. And it usually goes like this. What is hope? Someone says, hope is... <laughs> but John Piper says about biblical hope, says this, ordinarily when we express hope, we are expressing uncertainty. But this is not the distinctive biblical meaning of hope. Biblical hope is not just a desire for something good in the future, but rather biblical hope is a confident expectation and desire for something good in the future. Biblical hope is not only desire biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There is a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. That is biblical hope. Confident expectation. Last year, Christmas Eve, my grand passed. She was a believer. And I've never been, I like how here at the church they call it a Thanksgiving service. Because though it was so painful, there was so much underlying hope and joy that may rank in is with God and Christ. She had this hope, and we had this hope, and it affected the way we grieved. It didn't take away from the pain. But we weren't grieving like the rest of the world. So I wonder if you have ever experienced this true biblical hope. Maybe you have experienced both. You've been on both spectrums as a Christian. You've experienced despair, but you've also experienced the mercies and grace this hope in Christ, this hope of the gospel. And at one time, your grief was maybe characterized by despairing. Or maybe you've experienced grieving with a confident expectation of what is to come. And, this, and like I said, it doesn't lessen or cheapen the loss or take away or negate the pain and sorrow, but the ultimate sting of death for Christians has been removed. When it comes time to face grief, what will characterize your grief? Expectant hope as a Christian or, as, or despair like the rest of the world. Hopelessness like the rest of the world. So Paul wanted these Christians in Thessalonica to grieve as those who were not ignorant of the hope that they shared, the hope that they had. But the, that leads you to the question, what is that hope? 
What is the basis of this transforming, biblical, Christian, confident, expecting hope? What is it? How and where is it produced? Paul does not want them to be uninformed. That's what verse 13 says. So in the verses to come, he aims to dispel ignorance and encourage them with God-given understanding. So Christian hope transforms grief in the midst of sorrow and transforms belief amidst uncertainty. We're going to see this through two ways, through, through the gospel and through the promise. We're going to see for two people as well, Christians who have died and for those who are living, because the Thessalonians had questions concerning those who died. Were they ever going to see these people again? They were wondering and questioning, my brothers, they've died. Am I, what, what will happen when Christ returns? So here's Paul trying to supply what was lacking in their faith. So in verse 14, if you look to the text, verse 14 says, For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. So we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul's answering their question of what happens to Christians who die by firstly reminding them of what they already believe and the implications that follow. It's the gospel. What underlines the hope? The gospel. They knew the gospel, as Paul had alluded to in chapter 1, as, as, he, as he, he saw that there was, they were evidencing these vital signs of Christianity. They knew the good news of Jesus Christ. And here we get this short glimpse. So we believe that Jesus died and rose again. They knew that Jesus lived, that Jesus came, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, was nailed to a cross, took upon himself the wrath of God so that the good, just God could justify the ungodly. So man's sins could be forgiven and he could be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. It's not what we have done or what we will do for God, but it's what he has done. They knew that. And Paul's reminding them of this. They knew God's command to all men to repent and believe the gospel. That's how the gospel was spreading in Thessalonica. God was saving people. However, the good news doesn't end with just these two points, with just the atoning work of Christ. And I I feel we often stop our gospel messages there. Jesus died. Jesus died. A lot of times I hear people stop. Jesus died died for your sins. You can be forgiven. That is massive. Unless if you don't have that, you don't have salvation. But maybe the reason so many are so quick to despair when faced with future uncertainty, maybe because there is so much confusion with what's to come. We often think there's so many conflicting ideas and thoughts and interpretations that I'll just take this idea of what's to come and put it on the back burner. Set it as a peripheral matter or a secondary issue. But Christ's return is no peripheral matter. We see the resurrection here, the ascension of Christ. The return is the rest of the good news. That Jesus rose from the grave conquering death. Death has lost its sting. The historical resurrection of Christ. We see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul reminding the Corinthians, 
lest they forgot that Christ died for their sins and rose again three days later. He was seen by 500 witnesses. Later in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, if it were not for the resurrection, if the resurrection were not true, we are believing in vain. The historical truth of the resurrection. But we need to take the, take the fullness of this message that Christ came, he died, he rose again, and he ascended to, to heaven, and he's coming again for us. There's a complete message. To leave out the resurrection and ascension and man's future hope, I was thinking, it's like giving a child an unfrosted birthday cake with an unlit candle, singing happy birthday and having them blow it out. It's an incomplete job, and it doesn't make sense. It leaves a child confused, and so when we negate to teach about Christ coming back, we leave people confused about their future hope. And so whether Paul wasn't able to fully give the Thessalonians all he wanted to about Christ coming, and their hope in the life to come, their hope that Christ has conquered death, and that they will see their, their relatives or their other believe, the other believers again, we don't exactly know. But we do know this, that our Christian hope is firstly based on the gospel. But he will come again, as he said, and for those who have died, they will be, they will be brought with Jesus upon his return. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says, that we have been united with Christ in a death like his and we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's not just a physical return, it's a spiritual, we've been given life, we're united with Christ now in a death like his and we will be, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his when we ascend with him. So once someone's united with Christ, nothing can snatch them away. Paul moves on from, from this establishing this creed-like statement of we believe this, and because I believe this, the implications are that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. And then he moves on to give them more further details, a second reason on why we can trust this hope, or what is the basis of this hope. And it's, you could say, the Lord's promise, or the trustworthiness of God, or God's word, that's what, he, that's what from 15 through 17 is. So most likely Paul is here explaining from some further revelation that he had received from the Lord with regards to the second coming. And as he previously spoke about those who are dead in Christ, now he speaks to those who will, who will still be alive when Christ returns. They will by no means will they have any advantage over those who previously died? And in verse 15, he says, according to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. There was a worry that, that, the, that some of the Thessalonians had that, well, are we gonna have a greater advantage because we've lived longer, and if Christ returns when we're still alive, will we have an advantage over those who have died? And they're, they're potentially worrying about these things, but Paul's saying that's not the deal. By no means. They'll have no advantage over those who've died. The Thessalonians may have had, had a question, but we see clearly that's not the case. 
But then the focus changes from being about man. We see Paul reassuring the Thessalonians that God will bring those believers who have fallen asleep with him. And then in verse 15, and those who are still alive will, be, will, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 16, he says, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven. So we see this shift from, from talking about the, our hope as a man to all of a sudden it's t- it's the, the subject is the Lord. The verse 16 says, the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then he goes on to say, after that, we who are still alive, are left, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. There's so much there. There's so much people have taken out of context and made other stuff out of. But do you see the glory here, the magnificence? The description of the second coming here describes an unmissable future event. Start at the top of, of 16, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel. This will not be a secretive event that goes unnoticed. And additionally, the word caught up here is the only unambiguously mentioned term of the word rapture. And as some have gone to make more of things than are plainly and clearly presented here, and I'm sorry if you're a left behind fan, but this is no hidden secret event. This is an unmissable event, a trumpet sound, a loud command. No one will miss this. And Alistair Begg, he said, let us take the plain things as the main things and keep the main things the plain things. The main, issue, the main purpose of this text isn't, like I said, to make a systematic theology and the Lord will come, Lord's, Lord's second coming. It's to encourage these grieving believers and to give them some more details. John Calvin warned against going beyond what God had clearly and plainly revealed in the word. Let us find our hope, not in the speculations of man, but in the definitive, objective, living word of God. And that's what we see here from 15 to 17 is God's promise, God's word. But the focus in this section, it's not all about man. Though man is a definite part, the focus is on the Lord. And look at that return, the return, such a glorious return. And then you see the ultimate hope for those who are dead. The ultimate hope for those who are dead and still alive. The very end of verse 17, we see the crescendo of this passage, the climax of this passage, the finishing grand finale is that end of verse 17. We haven't found it. It's we who are still alive. We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. We will be with the Lord forever. Christ has conquered death. Those who have died, it, like the thief on the cross, when he, when, Jesus, when he cried out to Jesus, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. We don't believe in, that the Bible teaches soul sleep, that when you die, you go into some intermediate state, waiting for the second, second coming. 
that I have hope that my grand who passed and that George is in the presence of the Lord. As we, see, as we saw in this text, we have hope for them, those who have passed, and hope for us who are still alive and who will be alive when the Lord returns. But what, but what a wonderful day. As Liam said today, when, when Paul said, oh, he was expressing this, this deep wonder, this deep joy, this deep longing for God. What a wonderful day that will be. And as Paul is telling the believers in Thessalonica to try to bolster their faith, to remind them, to inform them, to encourage them, to press on, to fix their eyes on Christ. He has conquered death. We will be with him forever. When the trumpets, when the, there's an old song that says, when the trumpet of the Lord will sound and time shall be no more, and the morning breaks eternal bright and fair, when the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. When the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, it says over and over, I'll be there. C.H. Spurgeon says these words, stingless death remains among the people of God, but it so little harms them that to them it is not death to die. No, the Christian says, death? I will, I will not fear you. Why should I? You look formidable, but your sting is gone. Your teeth are broken. Oh, old lion, so why should I fear you, death? I know that you are no more able to destroy me, but you are sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate of heaven through which I stand and watch I shall enter and see my Savior's face forever. Brothers and sisters, we share this. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, the same hope that C.H. Spurgeon had. Have you this hope? Is your hope one that is anchored to the gospel? One that is anchored in the trustworthiness of God's word? Sometimes, Life, it's like a boat that's anchored or tethered. And at times we feel like the tether is loose. We feel as we're being thrown about, tossed and beaten down by the waves. But the anchor holds us fast. This anchor beyond the grave, this hope in Christ. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. There's nothing that can break that bond of love and unity between Christ and those who, who are united in him through his life, death, and resurrection. Or maybe you're more like the untethered ship, adrift amongst the ocean of life. You have no specific direction beyond the direction you set. No, no specific meaning beyond the meaning that you set for your own life. No ultimate protection or hope for when the mighty tempest of grief and sorrow and loss descend upon your life, what will you hold on to? No, no. Maybe the question should be, what will hold on to you? This hope in Christ is available for, for all who acknowledge their sinfulness and their rebellion and trust in God's free gift of grace to Christ. There is no other way under heaven given given among men by which we must be saved. 
Today is a day of salvation. If you do not have this hope, please consider these words. Repent and believe the gospel. Gain your hope in the gospel. What is your hope in? And maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you have been driven to despair in your grief. Be encouraged that God is so doing a work in your life to make you more like himself. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Nothing can snatch you out of my Father's hands. He is holding you in your grief and in your sorrow and your despair. But oh, the hope to be had in grief and in uncertainty. But also, the Christian hope equips for relief. And this is Paul's final application, our final verse we see. He wants to drive home. This is the purpose he was writing, was so they would be encouraged. Paul concludes with verse 18 saying, Therefore, encourage one another, not with their self-worth or their self-esteem, not that, not that they can do it. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Paul's encouraging them to encourage one another with these words, with these words, the gospel and God's promised trustworthy words of Christ's return. The Thessalonians were to hear these truths and to seek to encourage each other. And shouldn't that be our goal? We come to encourage, we come to church to be encouraged, not just to be encouraged, but to, to encourage, to build up the brothers. How will we encourage each other with these words? How will you encourage George's family? How, you, how will you encourage those who you know who are grieving? So often in Christianity, we, we talk about preparing to give an answer for the hope that is in us, and we speak of that as an apologetic. And yes, we should, we should give a, an answer, a reason answer for the faith, for those who are questioning and looking to get an answer, but how, should we prepare to give an answer by the bedside? When our fathers and mothers, our brothers and sisters, our friends are lying, shouldn't we prepare what verse are you going to go to in the Bible? What hope are you going to bring? What light are you going to bring of Christ? What salt are you going to bring to the earth? This week I got, I didn't say I got the chance, but on Tuesday we got a call that my grandfather was heading to the hospital and it didn't look good. Um, he's been on a steady decline since grand passed last year. And he, they, the doctor said it could be minutes, it could be hours. That was Tuesday night. We, we drove down on Wednesday and we wanted someone to be there with him. And God's providence, he had me writing this sermon at the foot of my grandfather who has his hope in Christ. And we sat there, not despairing, we prayed for him, we sung to him, we held his hand, we talked and, and talked stories about him. And you know what? Whether he could hear everything or not, every once in a while we got a squeeze, every once in a while we got this look over, his eyes opened up. We don't know, but how great to know that my grandfather, when he passes and finishes his race, it could be now, it could be minutes, when he closes his eyes on this side, he'll be welcomed into eternity we will spend our eternity with the Lord. So our Christian hope 
is the only hope. You can find your hope in nothing else. It is an expectant hope. It is a confident hope. It is one that transforms grief amidst sorrow. It transforms belief amidst uncertainty. And it transforms relief amidst the church. There's lots of great resources. Lots of great books. We have the Bible. Let's seek to encourage one another with these words. Please bow your heads with me as I pray. Heavenly Father, God, you have given us your word. You have given us this living hope. We've been born again to a living hope, God. For all those who truly know you, God, we pray that um, as Christians, we could know this, this transforming hope that is our anchor beyond the veil, that is in Christ and the work that you have done. And God, one day we will be with you forever. This life, God, is a vapor.